Okay, here we go. It is episode 550 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio. I am Derek M. Cook, and I am not hosting this episode. Well, I mean, technically I am hosting because I'm doing the intro and the outro, but this is another week, the final week, where we have the Diecast Movie Podcast's Steve Turk coming in and helping me out. He got a recording with a longtime podcast aficionado. If you've been listening to podcasts for as long as I have, you first met this man when he was called Richard from Wichita. Over the years, he's adopted a few different names as he's moved around and that sort of thing. And now he is Rich from the Classic Horrors podcast. Rich Chamberlain is here this week with Steve Turek to talk about the Hammer film, These Are the Damned. And I'm incredibly jealous because I've not seen that movie. And after listening to their conversation, I really, really want to see that movie. You know, in all my free time. During this never-ending unpacking. Oh, oh, man, I know, I know. I've been complaining about it. I've been talking about it for weeks on end. I don't think I'm going to have everything done by next week, but one way or the other, I'm going to be here next week to talk about a movie with Steve Turek, and I'll talk about that at the end of the show. I want to give a huge thanks to Steve Turek, who has done the lion's share of the work here on making sure there is consistent movie discussion content on Monster Kid Radio. Steve, you are the man. And of course, he didn't do it by himself. Alistair Hughes did two episodes. Jeff Owens and Rich Chamberlain did an episode each. That's four weeks of solid content presented by Steve Turek in company. And I am so grateful and honored that so many people wanted to help out while I've been dealing with all this real life stuff. Still dealing with it. But things have been a little easier, and I'm hoping that by next week is going to be even more easy. And yeah, it's just going to keep getting better and better around here as I get the Makerspace Mad Lab set up. Oh, man. I, I can't wait. I really can't wait. And I know Wednesday can't wait either, because really, she's kind of getting a little grumpy because the place is so messy right now. There's really nowhere for her to kind of run around as I've been kind of organizing and reorganizing and tearing things down and building things back up. I've got to redo my whole computer setup between this week and next week, I think, because I don't like where the computer is sitting right now. If I don't filter it out, you would hear a lot of computer sound, and I'm just, I'm not happy about that. So I got to figure out a way to fix that. I don't know if getting a bunch of like uh, sound baffling paneling, you know, those those black panels you can put on the wall would kind of help with that or not. I, I don't know. I don't own any. I've got a couple of my Amazon wish lists, but you know, whatever. Anyway, huge thanks to Steve and Rich and Jeff and Alistair. And also huge thanks to the band Los Ultraman. Los Ultraman. I, yeah, come on. With a name like Los Ultraman, you know I'm going to play them here on the show. And in fact, I have. It has been a long time since I've played them. But I went and I looked at their discography, and I found a pretty chill, laid-back song called Mission 182. That's the song you're hearing right now. You're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of the show, of course. But if you can't wait, and you have to hit pause to go track down this album, you want to go over to their website on Bandcamp, LosUltraman.bandcamp.com and pick up the album El Disco del Jaleiro. It's right there. It's the first 
track on that digital album that you can get for five bucks. Like I always say, there will be a link in the show notes if you want to go support the bands that help support us. Or maybe you happen to be kicking around in Uruguay and you run into them there. That's where they're from. Anyway, we've got that coming up. We've got Steve and Rich talking about These Are the Damned. And we've got Mark Natsky's Beta Capsule Review. Another Ultramount episode. And, you know, one of the things that I've been doing as I've been trying to get my life in order here is put in Ultraman Blu-rays to have running in the background. The problem is that because it's all in subtitles, I find myself stopping and watching the show actively instead of just having it on in the background. I I, I know. Nerd world problems, right? Anyway, uh, we're going to get to Mark Madsky's Beta Capsule review, and then we're going to roll into the main discussion, and yeah, I'll wrap up the show at the end. So stay tuned, because here we go. I'm Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Please leave your eyes at the door. You will not need them. This is Lord Bloodraw's Nerve-Rackin' Auditorium. Lord Bloodraw's Nerve-Rackin' Auditorium presents the best of old-time radio, horror, and science fiction. Tales of terror and the uncanny that unfold on the stage of your imagination. Every shot, every thrill will echo within the theater of your mind. Come experience the magic of old-time radio horror. Lord Blood Draws Nerve Rack and Auditorium is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other podcast providers. Lord Blood Draws Nerve Rack and Auditorium. When you... Seek the darkness. <laughs> Godzilla, King of the Monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's alive! A gigantic beast stalking the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror. <laughs> through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Incredible Titan of Terror. Wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flame. Jet planes cannot destroy it. 
cannot kill him. All modern weapons fail. Is this the end of our civilization? Can the scientists of the world find a way to stop this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. A tale to stun the mind. More fantastic than any ever written by Jules Verne. More terrifying than any ever shown on the screen. Awesome. Incredible. Unbelievable. A story beyond your wildest dreams. Dynamic violence. Savage action. Spectacular thrills. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Fantastic beyond comprehension. Gripping beyond compare. Astounding beyond belief. The mightiest monster of them all. See Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. The fate of civilization hangs in the balance. The invasion of Earth will begin if an alien can persuade a human being to say the forbidden words in the 33rd episode of Ultraman. Hayata, Fuji, and her heretofore unseen little brother, Satoru, are enjoying an air show when things get weird. Satoru is bothered by a voice only he can hear just before the trio observes airplanes and a tanker ship being pulled up into the sky in an apparent reversal of gravity. When the ship explodes, Captain Muramatsu radios to the three to investigate, while, in collaboration with Professor Yamamoto, Ide and Arashi take the VTOL into space, where they discover not only the wreckage of planes, but the abandoned Science Patrol automobile in which Hayata and crew were last seen. Fearing the worst, they return to headquarters, only to get word that Fuji has been located. That's the good news. The bad news is? She's the size of a kaiju, under telepathic control of alien Nephilus, who has a number of other surprises up his galactic sleeve. Mephilus is governed by principle, however, and will not commence his takeover until a human utters the words, I give you the Earth. The alien places enormous pressure on young Satoru to say the forbidden words, while turning giant Fuji loose on a rampage and preventing Hayata from transforming into Ultraman. When Mephilus reveals he's ready to unleash Baltan, Zerub, and a Kamurian alien, the Science Patrol and the Japanese Air Force locate his spacecraft and engage in a massive bombing run. But will Satoru, Fuji, and Hayata survive the attack? The Forbidden Words is a hard episode to summarize, but that's a good thing. The action is fast-paced, the stakes are high, the story intelligent, and the behavior of Mephilus is unpredictable. It's pretty exciting to see the lineup of former alien foes make their brief reappearance, and when Ultraman does finally show up, Mephilus matches him move for move, underscoring the fact that our hero doesn't always win. An important bit of foreshadowing as we head into the home stretch of the series. 
for Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. This is Mark Matsky reporting. Monster of is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. as though the devil himself is in pursuit. And well he might, for he saw what no man has ever seen before. It's on its way. The man on the main gate had it just like the others. It's coming in on the west side. Look! Three experts in science and security need a band of men who try to find a way to exterminate X, the unknown terror. Only to find a tunnel of fear from which there is no escape. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf in color. The harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, the shadow of the cat. A shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. 
If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 550th episode of Monster Kid Radio. And I know this is not the way Derek was probably ever planning to do the 550th episode, having a guest host do it. But he's still unpacking, getting stuff back from Oregon to Washington and all the other stuff, all the craziness that's going on. And and he asked me one more time to help him out. And I'm help, I'm getting helped out this time with Rich Chamberlain from the Classic Cars Club podcast. How are you doing today, Rich? I am doing fantastic and very honored to be here on the 550th episode. So even though Derek's not here, I am I'm more than pleased to be sitting virtually with you. And and listeners, I know you'd rather have Derek doing something like this with you on the 550th episode, but I think we can all agree that he's given us so much joy and happiness with the 550 episodes that he's been able to put out. And even though he's not talking as much in this episode as he'd hoped to, as originally Derek and I were going to do a movie together and I was going to edit it for him, but circumstances happen. And Rich, thankfully, was able to pinch hit at the very last minute and uh, with, with helping out. And, of course, as Derek usually did, he lit the hammer light. He's got that hammer bat signal going with the big H, and I had to do another hammer movie because – when I see that, when I see H, I think hammer. It's just the way I roll. You might think horror, Rich. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say that, yeah, I'm honored to be able to, to step in here and help. You know, as you said, Derek has done a lot over the so many years, and and, and with Mail Order Zombie before Monster Kid Radio, uh, I am very pleased that I can step in and, and help out what he's unpacking and uh, wish him well and. Uh, great to, to be here so we can talk hammer i think i think there's never enough hammer being talked about and i know alistair hughes would agree with me on that he thinks hammer should be represented in almost every episode in every podcast but you know he's he's, <laughs> he's, he's definitely biased <laughs> i do believe in some balance but i know hammer because Derek had 1951 down place he was usually doing yeah. hammer over there not as much over in monster kids so for a little while everybody's getting a flare of the hammer uh, before we go talk about the movie you picked, though, Rich, you know what time it is. I believe I do. It's time for the classic five. Five. <laughs> we might not have your promo, Sullivan, but I had Rich do a pinch hit there to get us that extra zing. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it low key, you know. I don't want to step on Mr. Sullivan's toes, so you know. But if but if I did have your 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 thing, I would have put it in there for you. Steve, so don't, you know, I just don't have it. <laughs> and you definitely don't want me singing it. <laughs> First question up for you, Rich. What character from a classic monster movie would you like to have a drink or meal with? What character from a classic monster movie would you like to have a drink or meal with? Oh, wow. What character? Not an actor, but a character? Correct. A character. And it could be a main character. It could be a supporting character. See, I, I immediately think actor, and I'm like, man, I'd love to sit down and, and have a meal with, like, Peter Cushing or Boris Karloff. And so here I'm trying to sit and think, or Vincent Price. What uh, of their movies would I could I sit down with and, and have a conversation with? Let's go Vincent Price. 
And I'm going to go with, oh, man. Uh, Vincent Price from uh, House on Haunted Hill. There we go. I'm thinking that that's, I'd get probably a lot of uh, Vincent Price and his mannerisms in that conversation. So, yeah, I'll go with that. You know, you know, it'd definitely be a, a meal to kill for. I knew that was coming. <laughs> well, when you went with Vincent Price, I, I had to, you know, first thing I was thinking when you said Vincent Price and I was thinking characters, I don't know why I thought this was Dr. Goldfoot, but th- that's just where my mind works sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, well, I know I wouldn't want to be Dr. Fives because chances are I might not make it out of the meal alive. So well, that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> What is your favorite classic movie monster? I'm sorry. What is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? What is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? Uh, probably again, I'm thinking universal man. I brighter Frankenstein. I, I think that that's a movie that it follows so well with the original and it's such a classic. I, I personally, I laugh at, you know, Uno O'Connor. I know some people that her character just is like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. I don't know. She makes me, she makes me laugh. Um, I love Dr. Praetorius in that film as well. So, uh, I'm thinking of like, you know, Dracula and, and Wolfman and, and, and all the others. And I don't know, Brighter Frankenstein was the one that I think took that, took that original film and, and upped its game a little bit, even though I also really loved the first movie. And there are things about it I love more than Bride. I'll say Brighter Frankenstein. Hey, nobody can argue with that. I mean, you know, it's because Rich, it's your it's your pick, it's your choice. You can <laughs> never be wrong. There's never a wrong answer. No, there isn't. All right. What is your favorite Ed Wood film? What is your favorite Ed Wood film? I have not seen a lot of Ed Wood films. Um, that makes it easy to pick I, one. <laughs> I'm going to go with Bride of the Monster. Um, that movie, I, there's, there's more to love in that movie than to hate. I think Lugosi is really good in that. I mean, yeah, you get the octopus that, you know, didn't have the, the battery pack, didn't have the, <laughs> wasn't plugged in, so it's not moving. I don't know, though. That movie, I have a lot more fun with that movie than I probably should. So, um, I know a lot of, a lot of people love Plan 9 from Outer Space, and while I can have fun with that, I would say, you know, definitely Bright of, Bright of the Monster. I want to see, was it Night of the Ghouls, which is, I think that's another one he did in the late 50s that wasn't released for a lot of years and then did get released. That movie's been on kind of my my list to see for quite a long time, and I haven't seen it. So, yeah. Bright of the Monster, though, gets my vote. Bright of the Monster's mine also, so I agree with you. What two 1950s monster movies would make a great double feature? You know, uh, them and Tarantula. Uh, thinking of giant bug movies, those two are, in my opinion, two of the best. Uh, there's a lot of lot of great ones, but that would definitely be uh, definitely be right there at the, at the top of the list. If I had to go with something else, I'd maybe go to the other end of the extreme. And I and then uh, what was it, the one with the the, the tree trunk what, from Hell It Came? I think so. Yeah, from Hell it came right. That's the yes. one with the with the tree trunk, right? I believe so. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with from from Hell it came and uh, and uh, maybe the giant claw. 
would be a would be a crazy double feature. Special effects kind of run amok or run out of, of steam halfway through. I don't know. But if I was gonna, yeah, I'd go with uh, them or Tarantula would be my pick. Or that'd be my first pick. Good choices. Good choices. And your final question, Mr. Chamberlain. What is your favorite favorite John Agar monster movie? I'd have to go with uh, Revenge of the Creature. Yeah, that is it. I'm I'm, I'm cheating a little bit here. I had to make sure. I knew he was in one of the Creature movies, but then I thought, no, he's not in the first one. Revenge of the Creature, which I love that movie. Uh, I have not seen the third Creature movie in a very long time. I always see the first two, and I and I then I somehow never get to that third movie. So it's been years since I've seen that. Revenge of the Creature. Um, but I also like the brain from Planet Eros. Um, that's a lot of fun. Uh, Tarantula is also a lot of fun. Um, but I would go Revenge of the Creature. Good answers, Rich. And of course, as Derek would always say, because this is his show, since you picked the movie of Creature, you get the stag. <laughs> <laughs> which is good because this is the last minute. I, I had really a hard time getting somebody else at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it would, it would. So rich, when I said, when I told you that the hammer signal was out and I reached out to you, you picked, these are the damned or the damned, depending on what country you're in. Black leather, smash, smash, smash. Black leather, black leather, crash, crash, crash. Black leather, black leather, kill, kill, kill. I got that feeling. Black leather rock. Animals dressed as human beings. Smash, smash, smash. A game for the wild ones played with the passion of the damned. Jump! Don't ever do that again, Johnny. I'll do what I like, King. Do you think I'll let a man put his dirty hands on you? People fleeing for their lives, leaving one hell for another. Escaping from what? From whom? What goes on behind these barbed wires? Who and what do these ferocious dogs guard? And who are these children? Where do they come from? To whom do they belong? Before you get yourself excited, King, touch the little boy's face. He's dead. He's dead, I tell you! Fear so real that you can touch it. Terror so sinister that it makes the flesh creep. These are the people who become one with the damned. The rich American on an English vacation. The beautiful girl, decoy for a gang of thugs, more sinned against than sinning. The Swedish artist, who chiseled strange shapes out of stone. And the scientist with a secret, who fought the shape of things to come. I hate your secrets, Bernard. If I were to tell you even a little bit about what you call my secrets, condemning you to death. What made you choose this movie? This is the first time uh, ever seeing it. You know, it's my first time seeing it as well. And I think that was kind of the reason why I, you know, you and I were talking and, and I came up with a couple of ideas. This one, 
immediately kind of stuck to me because it's been on my to watch list for a very long time. Um, I had that, the Icon Hammer Suspense DVD box set that came out several years ago. And I never got around to watching it on that set. And then I picked up the new Hammer Films Ultimate Collection 20 film set from Mill Creek earlier this year uh, when it was like $25, something like that, dirt cheap on Amazon. And uh, I have watched some of the films on that set. I haven't made it all the way through. So I thought that one is definitely going to fit the bill. That box set's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. This one, I know by looking at the description, had to do with mad scientists and, and kids thinking they were on a spaceship. And so I thought, let's go with that. And then I began questioning my decision for the first 45 minutes of the movie, wondering did I make the right call? Because I was beginning to wonder if uh, where things were going to start happening. And uh, this is one of those weird movies where, you know, you watch the first 45 minutes and then all of a sudden it kind of shifts tone and gears uh, kind of like from dusk till dawn a little bit. Um, you, you know that there's this plot building, so it doesn't come out of left field. But really, for the first 45 minutes, it, it seems more like a 1950s kids gone bad gang movie almost before it really kind of shifts gears. So I, I wanted to see it. I knew Oliver Reed was in it. Um, and I love watching him. I, I figured he was going to be in that, uh, you know, crazy mode as only Oliver Reed can pull off. And uh, I was not disappointed. He definitely definitely was a little crazy so yeah this this was going to be a fun one for me because again it's i had there are still some hammer films i have not seen and uh, this was now checked off the list as i watched it virtually hours before we've started recording so uh it's very fresh in my mind when you picked it and i was like okay i got this one because i have the uh the the hammer collection which is um i got a long time ago from europe and that kind of stuff, so it's I can play it on my uh, Blu-ray player that, that has the all-region format. Yeah, yeah, to it. And uh, so I watched, but I watched the trailer. So I went on YouTube, and I'm like, you know, let me see what the trailer is for this. What, what am I getting into? And the trailer um, is like the movie. The first half of the trailer is one thing, and the second half of the trailer is another thing because it's doing it's doing uh, something like. Smash, 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 all in big words across the screen. Yeah. Kill, 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 you know, and and, and that kind of, and, which is a song that's throughout the first half of the movie that they're singing. Yeah. But it was just, yeah. I was like, wait a minute, what what is this? And then it switched over to the science fiction angle, and it got more serious, or or, or different type of movie. I shouldn't say maybe more serious, but a different format. So it, it was like two films and one, and in ways it made a lot of sense because it was just showing the progression of society at that time that they were filming. So it made sense in, in, in some ways. And in other ways it was just, but it, when you, I could see people watching the trailer and then they go watch this, what's labeled as a science fiction horror film, are, are going to be a little bit thrown off. But it is based on, the Children of Light by H.L. Lawrence. So it's based off a story or a book. 
Yeah, I wanted to find out more about the the book, and I and I, you know, in my the limited time I had to to do research, I couldn't find anything right off the bat about it. I watched this movie with uh, with my wife Carla, and she she liked it. She was kind of like me, not sure she would revisit the movie again. Um, she is one who who kind of wants backstories filled in. Um, she wants to know you know, A, B, and C that, to, you know, what, what got us to the point where we're at in the movie. And I'm a little bit more forgiving, I guess, because I've seen more of these movies than she has. And I know that more times than not, we don't get the backstory. You get a sentence or two of dialogue that tells you this is where we're at. And then you just kind of have to take it and go with it. And I tried comparing it to, you know, like if you read, say, um, like a pulp novel, like a Doc Savage novel, for example, most Doc Savage movies are going to give you, or books are going to give you just what you need. They're not going to give you a lot of extra information. On the other end of the extreme is like a Stephen King book, right? He will spend three pages, you know, describing the shape and color of a rock, you know, and Ultimately, that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. And somewhere in between is, is, is that, is that feel good spot where you get the information you need, uh, enough that it gives you the backstory. A lot of times with movies, especially from this era, you don't get that. Uh, you may get just a little bit and then it's left kind of up to your imagination to fill in. And that was, I think, her biggest problem with this movie that didn't bother me as much was where did these kids come from? You know, what were the events that led up to them being, you know, where they are in this film where they're, they're basically in this bunker, if you will, you know, we, we find out in the last five minutes of the movie where we get some explanation as to what really, where did they originate from? Rich, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Anything. I think I'm a lot not. of people haven't seen this. Just- <clears throat> exactly. You, but you, you get it eventually, but you, you get a snippet of it and you don't get all the, all the extra details. I do, you know, there is something that, you know, there was some uh, question that, that Carla had as to like, well, all of these kids are the same age. Um, how is it possible that they, they all are kind of, again, trying to be careful here with spoilers, how they are all of the same condition. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I immediately, as I was watching this movie, we're dealing with these kids. Um, I thought of like the children of thalidomide. Um, and, and she was not familiar with that. So I had to, I did a little bit of Googling because I had to get some of the extra facts and figures for myself. I was aware of it, but I said, you know, with the children of thalidomide, for anyone who's not familiar with it, thalidomide was a drug given to pregnant women in the 1950s um, that had never been tested uh, on pregnant women and ended up having an adverse side effect on their children. Essentially, it was kind of like a sedative but it ended up resulting in uh, deformities. Uh, some of the children, you know, didn't have uh, fully developed arms or legs. Uh, some would have as many as seven toes on one foot. Um, there was a lot of 
of basic deformities like that. And it was because drugs were administered without proper um, knowledge of what they could potentially do to the pregnant women. And because of that, a lot of guidelines have been in place now to where, you know, there's extra testing done before any, any medication goes out in the real world and especially very mindful of what we give to pregnant women. And with the children of thalidomide, within a very short period of time, you had, you know, 10,000 kids that were being born with deformities, all of the, of the relatively same age. Um, in West Germany alone, 5,000 kids were born in a very short window of time that had this. So it's entirely possible if there's an event that is causing something to happen to a group of uh, women who are pregnant, that you could easily have nine kids who have all have these special traits that we see in this movie. And so if, if there's anyone out there who's thinking, well, you know, how is this possible? You don't really get a great explanation in the movie. I would, I would lean towards the children at the Lidomite real world event that easily happened as, as it's explained without giving away any spoilers, accidents happen. And yes, they do happen in the real world. And it could happen very easily that there could be, you know, something happened to a small group of children all the same age within a very short amount of time. And so that part of it to me didn't pull me out of the moment. It pulled her out, you know, but then as I explained it to her, she kind of understood a little bit better um, that, it, yeah, it absolutely could happen because this movie is probably more set in the real world and less science fiction certainly isn't a horror um although some of the events of the film are horrific when you think about you know the effects of what was happening but it's not really a true horror movie and the sci-fi on this is is very low key in this movie Uh, a bit lower key than i anticipated i was expecting a little more sci-fi didn't quite get that uh, as much and as by the time you get to the end of the of the 95 minute running time now for me unlike um carla and i think more like yourself and alistair and i talked about this um last episode i don't really need a whole bunch of backstory to go yeah. in i just need enough for the for the, the plot to understand what's going on and what's happening and usually if the writing is there for what's happening you can in- intuitively think about what caused oh x y and z to happen prior to the movie starting and then you can extrapolate for where it's going to go after the movie ends and uh, I, I i like that storytelling better than storytelling that literally tells you this happens because of this and they go into this whole detail which is fine but it's, it's to me when it's and if it's over talkative that means you did something wrong with the using the medium because the medium of film should be visual with the dialogue, but but mostly visual, because that's the whole point of having something in film instead of a book, where if you have to rely on an exposition drop every so often yeah. in order to plan it, it's it's a poorly written screenplay, in, in my opinion. I, I agree. I gave her the comparison, too, of, of comic books, for example. Comic books are a very visual presentation, but you also have to have a story, and you have to have the right balance. Um because people who are reading a comic book, they're there for the artwork, but they also want a story to be told. If in the course of, of you know two pages of a comic book, you've got 
a tremendous amount of dialogue and all you're doing is reading, reading, reading. And that happens sometimes in comics. All of a sudden the artwork becomes so diminished and you basically read two pages of, you know, a novel trying to explain your story. It's taken away from the visual presentation. You can get bogged down in the details. It's that find the balance of being able to tell a story visually while also giving the reader the information that they need, but not drowning them in, in detail. But this movie, because it's really kind of split between 45 minutes of being almost like a gang movie and then changing to like 45, you know, 50 minutes of being more sci-fi. If it was 95 minutes of sci-fi from beginning to end, then I would say, yeah, you probably should you have the opportunity then you probably should give a little bit of background information because you're spending 95 minutes in a pure science fiction world. You should probably take the time to expand a little bit on, on what got us to this point, this movie, the way it's structured and the fact that you really don't get any explanation until the last five minutes. I think that what they did works. And if there's any additional info that you need, I think it, it was well enough that I could fill in my mind. I could fill in what the, the extra details are, but they really don't matter in the big scheme of things. They really don't change the movie. You know, if you get that extra two lines of dialogue to explain the origin story of the children, does it change the rest of the 95 minutes? Not really. You know, it just gives you one little piece of information that for me, I don't need. But I know for some people, like my wife, sometimes she does. And that was her only only thing with this movie. For me, it, it wasn't an issue at all. And, and Dritz, just before I have you give a, a, a quick synopsis of what the movie's about, I just wanted to, to tie this a little bit together for, to, for listeners. You're talking about half the movie being a gang movie and half being not. And I said that with the trailer, that it, was, it seemed to be like two different movies. But when I watched the movie itself, it's, it's not like the first half is all biker gang. The biker gang is involved in it. Um, but it's really introducing all the players that are going to be used in the film, all the main lead characters and the main supporting characters, and, and how they all end up being tied together and end up at the same yeah. place in the second half of the film. And I thought that was very well done, and it allowed you to develop, get, get some ideas of what their background was. And as for not having the explanation of the children earlier, it would make no sense because we're following a certain, a certain two main yeah. characters, Simon and Joan. And, and for some, for lesser part King, we're following it from their point of view and getting the information they would have. And, and sometimes we're given extra information they don't have, but I think it's better to get the information that they're getting and not be, and, and, and then trying to deduce what it is going oh, on and of course since none, none of them have a science background they're going to have a particularly tougher time figuring it out and also since the film was filmed in 1961 it came out in 62 or 63 depending on what country and um a lot of people in the 60s were thinking of radiation and nuclear war and that this was mm -hmm. going to be inevitable especially in the 60s yeah. so as for the, that backdrop to explain information i think being at this, where this film came out at did not require all that backstory because it was pretty much people knew that already. You could just jump right in and nobody ever intended this movie to be seen 
you know, 60 years later, almost it was, it was, yeah. it was, it was, you know, and then tried to, and then, and now people watching now have to under, get backstory to understand where this took place and what people's mindsets were. But let's give people, Rich, if you can give them a brief rundown of what the movie is about, so that way people know what we're talking about. Yeah, and, and I, I just, before I, I dive in, I, I want to say, yeah, I wasn't trying to imply it was like from Dust Till Dawn, where you really, that movie really does take a, a, a turn, and there's really even no clues that was, you know, the movie is going to take that turn. You're exactly right. We, we're getting introduced to these characters. We know that there's this, this you know, this, other plot happening, you know, and, and as we see a few things before we hit that 45 minute mark, we obviously know that, you know, there are some, there's some children involved and there's more than what we've got going on. We're getting this whole other storyline. I think where I was going with that is it, 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 you, you get a lot of the gang storyline, a lot of background to those characters and probably not as much on the other until the second half of the film. So that's where, that's where it feels kind of like, things kind of take a shift about halfway through. And I, I think that was intentional the way they did that. Um, all right. So the movie um, is about uh, an American by the name of Simon Wells, played by McDonald Carey. Um, he is uh, basically traveling abroad. Um, he's I can, he kind of escaping reality. He's got the ability. He wants to you know, see the world. And uh, you see him at the beginning of the movie. He, uh, his uh, he a young woman catches his eye, the uh, character that we will know as Joan, um, and he kind of follows her around a little bit like a creeper at the beginning of the film. Uh, she ultimately is leading him into a uh, a bit of a trap with the uh, a gang that's called uh, later referred to as the Teddy Gang which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. I got some info on what that is because I had no idea what a Teddy gang was. Uh, I'm sure that some people who are more into British films probably knew exactly what, uh, what Teddy gangs were. Um, Joan has got a a brother uh, by the name of King played by the wonderful Oliver Reed. Um, He is kind of dressed very uh, dapper. He's got a suit and tie but then all the rest of the gang are wearing leather jackets and they're all bikers. And, um, there's a, a bit of a, uh, kind of a brutal beatdown on, uh, on Simon Wells. Uh, King has a, an umbrella that he uses. And that actually, I do not believe was in the original American cut. There was about eight minutes of footage that was cut out. Um, Originally, uh, they cut out some of the more uh, violent scenes, including this, as well as we would eventually get that King has got perhaps uh, an unhealthy uh, relationship with his sister, Joan. He's very, very protective, and there's almost a little bit of some incestuous activity hinted at, more so on his part. American uh, audiences didn't get to see that because when it was released, uh, I think Columbia Pictures was the one who handled the release in the States. They wanted that toned down significantly. So that was part of the eight minutes that was cut out. That's now been restored in the movie. So if you watch the Mill Creek set, it's, at the, it's back to its original 95-minute running time. Simon uh, recovers from the beating, and uh, this is where he meets the uh, character of uh, 
is it, it's Dr. Bernard, right? I mean, he was a doctor, correct? Or was it just Bernard? Uh, I'm trying to remember if they referred to him as doctor or not, but we'll just call him Bernard. He's the, he's yeah. the, he's the um, in charge of the project. He's in charge of the project, and he is um, uh, have not really. He's, he meets up with his uh, mistress. Uh, it's kind of never really specifically painted out. At first, I thought maybe it was a wife, but then it was like I got the hint more of it. Yeah, it's more of a mistress, uh, the character of uh, Freya. And uh, they end up meeting Simon, and uh, eventually uh, Simon and uh, Joan get reunited. Um, I'm not exactly sure how she ends up finding him other than, uh, it's implied maybe he mentioned that he had a boat or something. I don't know. That's a bit of a, how she kind of runs into him later on at his boat. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how that happened, but, um, it's clear that she is wanting out of the lifestyle, but she also is almost protective of her brother in a, in a kind of a very weird, unhealthy way because she is clearly being kind of subjugated by him, but she also is kind of protective because she knows that her brother's not the most stable of individuals. Uh, the gang shows up and, uh, Simon is very attracted to Joan and ends up, uh, helping her kind of escape and they're on a boat and eventually end up, um, on the, uh, on the coast where the facility is that, Bernard is uh, in charge of, and of course, conveniently right down the road is the artistic house that his mistress Freya is uh, is at as she's doing various artwork. And we've got all the players now in position and it all centers around this facility where Bernard and a group of individuals are monitoring a group of nine children. They are isolated um, everything is done via cameras. They've got apparently a rather strict regimen of, you know, life and education, but it's clear that they're, they're, they're being monitored very closely. And, uh, as we find eventually Simon and Joan end up fleeing King and the rest of the gang members who find them. And, uh, Simon and Joan are eventually saved by the children uh, which then leads to the rest of the film that I think we'll probably stop there as we begin to discover a bit more about the children uh, who have saved Simon and Joan and eventually saved King, um, who are being hunted by Bernard and the other individuals because they uh, inadvertently got onto the restricted area. And uh, Bernard wants to make sure that any loose ties are taken care of because what they're doing there is very top secret, even to the extent that we will eventually learn that even Freya does not know exactly what he's doing. And, uh, there are, you know, uh, reasons for that because he's got some ideas that aren't necessarily going to be, uh, accepted by the mainstream public. Um, and it revolves around these nine children who are very special. When Simon and Joan meet up with these children, they've been isolated and they are cold to the touch, uh, almost as if they are dead and they're shocked to find that Simon and Joan are warm because they've never touched someone uh, who is warm before. And Simon and Joan and then eventually King begin to discover that there's a lot more going on in this facility than, uh, than meets the eye. Yep. I enjoyed the movie. 
um, probably more than you did. I don't. I wouldn't mind watching it again. I'm glad I own it. Uh, but also, I like movies like On the Beach, which is a similar bent with Gregory Peck, where it involves yeah. nuclear radiation and and planet having problems and that kind of stuff. And and this one also involves planet having problems and other kind of stuff going on with it, uh, in in a in more of a background thing. But it's more the the characters that are going around and how this situation is going to be handled. And I find it interesting. This is in the trailer, as you brought up, like when King touches one of the children's faces and it's like cold to the touch, and he is just so Oliver Reed is playing it so well. He's like terrified. It's like like it's like you're dead. You know, to, and, 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 and again, these people don't have any scientific background, but even I think somebody with a science background might be totally thrown off by what's going on, thrown yeah. into the circumstances, you know, as they are and how they have to figure it out. What is happening? What is going on? What is with these children? And it shows they find the children by happenstance. But Freya's character was the one character I really enjoyed the most. And, um, maybe it's, she's in it. She's a supporting character and she's played by, oh, I'm going to butcher this. Do you think you could pronounce this name? Uh, I would pronounce it, uh, Vivica Linford. That's good for me, (laughs) (laughs) but she is one that's not really, she is not really firmly in the, the establishment. She likes to listen to people like, who don't trust everything that's always being said, you know, look for, she's, she's a sculptor. She's an artiste. And of course I don't look at her as being the mistress as more of being an old flame to Bernard. Like the two of them had a, had a thing back in the day and they see each other in this way and and that they're old friends. Whether they still do that other stuff that was when they were an old flame or not. I think of, I look at them as old friends and that they're very fond of each other. And, you know, from, from that perspective, like they parted on good ways. And Bernard is a public servant. He works for the government. And I love her line when he's like, I can't tell you, you know, what I'm doing and that kind of stuff because, you know, I'm a public servant. And then later on he goes, I'm a public servant. And she said, yes, a, a public servant that lies to their masters. Because if you're a public servant, then the public is your master. And then if you're not telling the public what you're doing, then you're lying to lying. the people. Yeah. And that, I just, that, was, that was a good line. I agree. Yeah. That I love great. that line. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it, this is a movie where Oliver Reed is going to be the most recognizable cast member. Uh, and this was relatively early on. He had just done Curse of the Werewolf. Uh, he done a couple of other movies. By the time this movie got released, because it was basically sat on the shelf for about two years before it got released in the UK, and then like another two years before it got released in the US in 65. So by that point, Oliver Reed had done a few other films like uh, Night Creatures, and uh, he was getting ready to do Paranoiac. But this was early on. The other cast members, you know, I, I recognize McDonald Carey. Mostly because in my youth, I used to watch soap operas. I'll own it. And I used to watch Days of Our Lives. And he was on Days of Our Lives for decades. Uh, he's the voice, you know, who says, you know, as fans of the hourglass, these are the days of our lives. You know, but he does. He has a couple of other genre-related movies that, that kind of surprised me. When you look at he does a lot of TV work. But he did a Hitchcock film, 
Shadow of a Doubt. That's Hitchcock, I believe, early 1940s. And he also did It's Alive 3, which I remember Jeff and I did the It's Alive trilogy. He plays the judge. And I remember sitting there watching that and just like very randomly, I'm like, you know, 1980s, he was doing the soap opera. And then all of a sudden he plays a judge in It's Alive 3. It's like, how did that casting happen? Uh, I did not recognize the actress who played Joan, uh, Shirley Ann Field. Looking at her cast, uh, you know, credits there, she did like House of the Living Dead in 74, Peeping Tom in, in 1960, a lot of other work, none of the movies that really stood out to me. The Vivica Linfers, I was surprised at two of the films that she did, and I, I admit I did not recognize her in, in one of these. Um, she plays the character of Catherine Langford in Stargate, the 94 movie. Obviously, she's, you know, 30 years older. I just saw that movie a couple of weeks ago because we've started watching the Stargate series. And uh, I was got that that was kind of interesting. I was like, wow, I, I would not have recognized her. She's also, for genre fans, she's Aunt Bedelia in Creepshow, 82 film. And I probably a little more recognizable in that. The, the only other person I recognized by name uh, was the actor Walter Gotell. He plays Major Holland. He's probably better known uh, to James Bond fans for the character of General Gogol. He played in, uh, I think, gosh, four or five James Bond films in the late 70s on into the 80s opposite Roger Moore. And I think maybe even made it into the Timothy Dalton era. You know, you look at the director, Joseph Losey, not a lot of um, sci-fi or, or you know other credits. He, he did The Boy with Green Hair. Uh, which I saw many years ago, starring the late Dean Stockwell, who we just recently lost. He did the remake of M in 51, which I've been aware of, and have to admit I have probably no desire to see that because I love the Peter Lorre version so much. I don't know what the 51 remake could do that would improve upon or even, you know, it hasn't appealed to me. I haven't, I haven't really wanted to see it. Uh, he was uncredited on X the Unknown, so I'm not sure what the story is there, but he did do work on that. This is not a, a typical Hammer film that you're going to see a lot of familiar faces. You know, the music is by James Bernard, but I don't know that there was anything in the music that immediately made me think James Bernard. I don't know if it did that for you. The music was definitely very different than I think you get in some other Hammer films. So he was going, I guess, with, with the spirit of the film. It, it, it's definitely a little different than what he did on, say, Curse of Frankenstein or Horror Dracula, because it's not a gothic setting at all. Yeah, well, said in the modern times, but I want to go back to the director, Joseph Lucy, again. He was an American director, okay. and he was also, for listeners, blacklisted, and that's why he went to Britain to start doing his film work. And um, so he okay. so he started off there was in the fifties was blacklisted, and uh, went on to very successfully do a lot of films, a lot of noted films. As you brought up some of in the sixties, not all most of his work was not genre, but he was, yeah, well regarded. You know, with, at least nowadays, I'm not sure how well he was at the time, but it, I know nowadays, like uh, directors like Joe Dante and everything, really enjoys work. And Joe Dante also really enjoys this particular film. I will say that you know when you when you if you look at the cover of of the uh, the Blu-ray, it's got a bit of the artwork, right? And you think of the movie; these are the damned, uh, or the damned as it was sometimes known. the The cover of the of the Blu-ray, uh, the not the uh, 
the sleeve of the actual case. It's got a girl with glowing eyes and she's holding a doll. That's from the original artwork. The, the title of the movie, uh, I guess, kind of fits in a way if you think about the children, but clearly was inspired by Village of the Dam from 1960. Spoiler alert, there's no kids with glowing eyes in this movie. They, uh, I know that the director wanted it to be called The Brink or The Abyss, which I'm not sure if either of those titles really, I'd have to think about it. I'm not sure if either of those would have worked. I look at it this way. I don't think the title mattered at all. I think from watching the trailer, this is a classic example of the publicity department of a studio not knowing how to market a movie because they did not know what this movie was about. And I think that's because anyway, if anybody wants to know, just YouTube, watch the trailer. And it is, I, this is the marketing people. I literally, and they'll have smash, 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 kill, kill, kill. And I'm thinking, what is going on here in this trailer? Yeah. And then it does a 180 in the trailer. And I, I, if I was, I, if I was sitting in an audience, like in the theater, watching that trailer come on, I'd be thinking to myself, I'm not going to see that, you know, because the trailer just did not sell what anything really what the movie was about, except for the second half of it. But the first half of the trailer, you'd already be tuned out just waiting for the next trailer. You know, because you only got, you had literally, I think with the trailer, like two and a half, three minutes. So you had a minute or 90 seconds worth of this stuff that's one thing. You're not going to pay attention to the second half of it, unless you're like myself, where I was going to be watching the film anyway. Uh, you know, but in the I movie, think if you movie, watch the movie, the movie's almost that way too, right? I mean, if you watch the very first part of the movie, I'm thinking this is, this is uh, you know, uh, kids in the gang movie, because that's the way it's very much presented before you start getting some of the other other plot developments, even to the point where they've got that song playing in the beginning, um, you know, they make reference to the Teddy gang who attacked Simon Wells. I mean, you're, you're, the setup initially is, is for a very different type film. And then as we get to know the characters more and as, as that first 45 minutes develops and we've seen the other random scenes with the character of Bernard and we get to see where he works and what's going on. We begin to see, yeah, there's this other plot that that's developing, but at a much slower pace while we're, we're kind of stuck into the, this gang in search of Simon and Joan. And for me, I don't dislike the movie, but there's some things about it that, that threw me a little bit. And I think it was that unevenness in the movie. I also felt like, the character of Simon Wells, you know, at first he's really, you know, the way he treats Joan in the early part of the film. I mean, he's, he's definitely coming across as, as, as a very unlikable character. I mean, he's kind of calling her, you know, a tart, you know, he acknowledges that that's, he, that's the way he treated her because he felt that's, that's how, you know, that's what she was. He, you know, she, kind of opens up to him and says, well, that's, you know, there's more to her than, than that. And then well, what does he do? He like forcefully grabs her and, and like is forcing himself upon her. And I'm, I'm like, am I supposed to be cheering this guy on? Because he's really kind of coming across as, as a jerk. Now he does eventually apologize and, and his character kind of takes a step back and tones down. But that initial presentation of the character is that he's not very likable. And I also felt that, 
McDonald Carey was almost too old. And I know they addressed that briefly at one point. He acknowledges he's married, he's divorced, he's, you know, much older than, than, uh, than Joan, but that he's never felt the peace that he has when he's with her. But I, I don't know, I found the, the relationship between Simon and Joan, I, I struggled finding that as believable as if maybe if they would have gone with a slightly younger actor, I think I would have, I would have bought it a little bit more than, than what was presented in the movie. You could have had someone younger, um, still playing someone very opposite of the character of King, someone who's not the, the, the the gang leader and, and, and not the young, you know, Teddy gang member, uh, but maybe not as old as, as, McDonald Carey was in this film. It, to me, it just it seemed a little off. Yeah, and I agree with you on that part, that, that the age difference. I look at it as most of the characters are not likable. They all have something wrong with They're all flawed characters. There's something yeah, you are. do yeah. like about them. The only character, again, my favorite one, Freya comes across as the most likable with the least amount of flaws. You know, I, 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 I don't, I I, I don't I, really I like notice any flaws in the movie at all. It's... it's you know, from her, I mean, you can imply maybe some, depending on your background, but it's just, uh, you know, b- because even like Joan's character set up Simon to be mugged because, uh, what the thing said, let, led him into a trap, you know, and yeah. uh, all these other things. And, and so it's, it's hard to root for anybody in this film, but I don't, I don't always need like just with the movie Clint Eastwood's the unforgiven. I don't need a character to root for. I'm looking at the characterization and how the characters are brought across and unforgiven is a, is a great movie and none of the characters are perfect. You know, the main thing is, is it's like, they're so flawed and this movie is the same way we have flawed characters and some of them are more flawed than others, or you might say more reprehensible, but each one is doing it for a different reason. And they think they're doing it for the right reasons in their point of view. Cause nobody ever thinks of themselves as being the villain they, 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 they always think of themselves as being the hero in their own story, in their own mind. And so they, and they'll justify it or rationalize it in different ways that they have to do certain acts or certain deeds and as they go across. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, some movies you need to have that person you're cheering for. Other times you don't necessarily have to have, you know, perfect characters. And, and, and sometimes it almost helps the movie if they're not perfect. Um, so I think it depends, you know, Simon's not necessarily presented as someone, you know, other than that early part of the film where he's kind of like presented as this, is he the knight in shining armor? Is he going to save Joan from this life of, with the gang? You know, and then he's kind of not really coming across as a nice guy. But as the rest of the movie plays out, you don't need him to be perfect because he's not presented in that way. And so that's why I say sometimes you do have to have someone to cheer for in a film. This movie, you don't necessarily need to. If you had to cheer for anybody, it would probably be for Freya, because she's the one, as you say, with probably the least amount of flaws. I liked her. She she has some kind of very low-key, funny lines, you know, uh, coming back to her, her, her place and finding that the bed has been slept in, uh, implying that Simon and Joan have, have had relations. Uh, she refers to them as Romeo and Juliet, you know, and she's just very kind of casual about it. And even when she has an altercation with King and then eventually one of the other gang members, she doesn't get 
afraid, although, you know, she's definitely a little careful around King because she can kind of sense that he's a little unbalanced. She's just very, especially this the way she kind of deals with his, uh, his you know, one of the other gang members in the, in the latter part of the film. You know, she's kind of just very funny with the way she approaches it. Uh, I liked the way that, that uh, uh, Vivica Linfers played that, that character. It's probably the most likable, I think, out of, out of anybody. I mean, certainly the children are sympathetic, but yeah, they, you didn't have a lot of character development there. Um, Freya would be the one, I guess, if you're going to cheer for anybody. And I don't know that you need to cheer for anybody in this film. And, and speaking of the children, you know, one of the children is played by Nicholas Clay, who I know right when I saw the name, I was thinking Sir Lancelot from Excalibur, the 1981 classic, you know, movie that I love and love and love, you know, and it was just like, Oh, you know, this of course he's very young in the movie and that kind of stuff. But it was just, it was nice to see that get a tie in with the genre work um, going on there. And he's also, he was in terror of Frankenstein. So he was in a, in a, um, a few other things. I, I have not seen Excalibur in many years. This makes me think that I really need to revisit that film. I, I do love that movie and have not, I have not seen it for a very long time. So, um, yeah, you know, it is kind of fun when you find these actors in a young role and you recognize a, a name, um, and then, Oh yeah, this is somebody that 20 years later is going to play this, you know, this role because a lot of times younger actors, you know, that's it They you know, they don't, they reach a point and that's it, the end of their career. Very few, I think, start off with, with the smaller roles and then eventually are still acting 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, oftentimes they age out. They get to that awkward age. You know, they get to be a teenager and find that the roles that they were getting when they were younger are not there anymore. And they oftentimes leave acting and, and go on to other things. So I wanted to, to just, I go back to one thing just real quick that, you know, the, the term Teddy gang, I was curious, what are Teddy gangs? And apparently it, it's been a thing in uh, British culture for, especially in the fifties, sixties and seventies. Um, essentially it was British youth. Initially they loved rock and roll and rhythm and blues, and they wore clothes from an Edwardian period. Uh, by the late fifties, they were getting a little more violent and um, would, would carry weapons around, switch blades and such. They were making attacks mostly against immigrants. So this would tie into this time period. The movie was made in 61. So they were kind of still in that period of time where they were a bit more violent. But um, they eventually kind of adapted their clothing. By the time you get to the very early 60s, so when this film was being made, they were, they were wearing a lot of the, the, the uh, suits and ties. But they were also beginning to wear leather jackets, kind of pattering after, you know, the 1950s, early 60s American gangs. And so you do get that, that you know, kind of weird mix where Oliver Reed's ver uh, character of King is in the suit and tie, but everyone else is wearing the leather jacket. But that actually was, you know, very possible looking at a Teddy gang that you would get those two very opposing styles, but it was kind of anti-establishment, I guess, as, as, you know, youth is always typically portrayed as. Their style would change again in the late 60s. They'd start wearing bright colors, 
And then in the 70s, they were back to wearing jackets again as a reaction to punk rock music. They weren't really always bad. They, they, were, they were youth. They were organized. Late 50s was their roughest period. So what the version of the Teddy Gangs that we get here is kind of an offshoot of that period. Most of the time, they were just kind of that youth subculture and the media tended to paint them in a more negative light than they really were. That stigmatism from the late 50s kind of stuck with them, even though that really wasn't who they were in the years that followed. And yes, they. I thought this when I was watching this. I wondered, you know, just by their mannerisms when they start marching across the street, the early part of the film, I immediately thought of Clockwork Orange. And sure enough, they did inspire the the droogs that we see in a clockwork orange that was inspired by the teddy gangs over in, in the uk so that's your history lesson for today on teddy gangs i had no clue who they were and, and uh, had to educate myself because they had mentioned it in the movie early on and i was like you know what is a teddy gang apparently uh much more common to, to british culture not something we got here in the states we got our own version we just didn't call them teddy gangs and Rich, I just want to say, I, I want to thank you for picking this film because I, I owned it and, I, and it was one of those things, you know, you get, you know, I think a lot of us that are movie collectors, sometimes we'll get a film and we're like, yeah, I'm going to watch this. And it, and, and it, and it gets on the shelf and then you kind of forget about it, that kind of thing. But you made, yeah. as, as for yourself, same thing, I think. And we got to pull it out. We got to watch it. And uh, I think for listeners, it's, it's a good movie. I mean, now. Uh, is this a typical monster kid movie? I did ask Derek if, you know, if it was okay to do this film and he, you know, gives a dokey dokey for every film we do. Um, it's, it's more science fiction. Is there a real monster? It, it depends how you define monster, because I know when we did the monster poll years ago on Derek's show, a lot of people were picking humans to be monsters. So it doesn't, in, in that case, there's a lot of monsters in this movie. It just depends on your point of view, of how you label the monster and going into it, but it's, it's available on disc. So you can watch this and get an idea of, you know, what are, you know, um, what are rich and I are talking accurately or leave your own opinions, send feedback to Derek. And that way we'll know which way you think about it. And rich, if you would talk briefly about your podcast, the classic cars club podcast, and what's that, what's that about and how people can follow that. Um, uh, classic cars club podcast has been going for, uh, five years as of January 2022. Uh, Jeff Owens and I get together monthly and uh, talk monster movies and horror movies and uh, usually have a theme. Usually we go with uh, three films. We we'll, might do three films from uh, Lionel Atwell and kind of talk about uh, Lionel Atwell's career before and after and during the movies. Um, sometimes we'll do like over the summer of last two summers, we've done our drive-in theme where we will do a triple feature of films that come directly from a, a legit triple feature from a specific drive-in movie ad that uh, we pull up on the internet. And we go back in time to that drive-in theater, give you a little bit of history on it and have, uh, guests pop up along the way. Like Mr. Turek himself had a time machine this past summer. So, um, you know, and uh, we will be doing it again. You know, we, uh, uh, we like to, to stir things up and, but that is sometimes a theme that did really, really well for us. So, um, coming up in, uh, December, 
We're going to be taking a look at the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee. Um, we're going to be focusing on mostly on three films, but we're going to be talking about the whole box set. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest box sets of the year. Uh, might be on your Christmas list. Um, I know that it, uh, by the time this goes out, the 50% off sale at Severn will be over, but I'm sure you can probably still find that at a good price if you want to play along at home. And, um, yeah, and, and I also do a couple blogs, uh, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Uh, everything I do is on KC Cinephile. It's Kansas City Cinephile. Um, this past summer, for example, I did the films of Harold Lloyd. Carl and I took a look at uh, all the uh, feature films from Harold Lloyd. Definitely not monster-related, so you will find some a greater mixture of stuff there. Anything that is sci-fi or monster-related uh, will also appear over at uh, monstermoviekit.wordpress.com. I've been doing that blog since... 2012. So I'm coming up uh, on the 10th anniversary of that blog. So that is in itself kind of crazy. That's what uh, that's what I do in my spare time when I'm not watching These Are the Damned with Mr. Turek on a Sunday afternoon. Well, then thank you. And um, Derek and listeners, you know, hopefully Derek will be back next week. You know, he'll be unpacked and ready to go. And you guys will not have to hear my voice for a while at least maybe I'll come in and do a movie with him like we've done in the past, but uh, we'll, we'll see how everything plays out Derek's move and so on. But Derek, you know, take care of yourself, get everything ready, you know, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing you talk for 550 more episodes about classic movies. Absolutely. Uh, look forward to having Derek back on the show and uh, hope that he is doing well. And uh, again, glad that I could step in and help out give a little bit back to the show for all the countless hours of entertainment I've been given over the years. So if I can step in for an hour and talk monster films or sci-fi films uh, and help out, I'm more than happy to do that. The best part about producing Monster Kid Radio are all the friends that I've made along the way. I love that I get to talk about these movies with people, with you with my friends, with fellow monster kids, with people who are obsessed with these movies the way that I am. It's just a real treat. And I just am so thankful for it. I know we did Thanksgiving like, what, a week ago at this point. I didn't really talk too much about it or get too in-depth. And you know, I don't think it's really appropriate now because I'm past Thanksgiving. But the bottom line is, is I'm thankful to each and every one of you who make what I do feel worthwhile. I know Steve and Rich kind of laid it on a little bit about congratulations, 550 episodes. That's, and, and I appreciate that. I'm not trying to downplay that. I just want to stress that I know that I wouldn't have done it without you, dear listener. Without you, I'm just wasting my time. So I appreciate you a lot more than I can ever express by just saying thank you. But, you know, thank you. Also, big thanks to Mark Matsky for continuously knocking it out of the park. You know, the Ultraman segments, it's something that I've wanted to do on the show for a long time. It's just one of those things where I just didn't have time. You know, my time management skills aren't the best sometimes, and I am known, and I think people know this about me. I think you probably know this about me. I will take on projects. I will bite off more than I can chew to get all cliched about it. I was very hesitant to do any Ultraman content because I, I knew 
I just didn't have the time. So when Mark offered to do this and to do the Ultra Q and then Ultraman and then keep going and keep going, it just makes the show that much better. And I hope Mark gets as much enjoyment out of producing the segment as I do in listening to the segment and including it in the weekly episodes. I also had a segment come in from Kenny. It's been a long time since we've heard from Kenny here on the show. I know he's still around, you know, he still turns up in the stream and all that, but because things have been in such a state of flux, it's hard for me to let Kenny know what we're talking about on the show. So his look at famous monsters of Filmland has kind of been in a weird hiatus just because he does have one created for spider baby when we finally run that episode. And like I said, he did send me a segment as well that I'm going to sit on, um, probably run it within the next couple of weeks. So you have that to look forward to. And speaking of looking forward to things, let's talk about the Monster Kid Movie Club, the stream over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. This weekend is an Edgar Wallace weekend. We're going to be showing movies based on the works of author Edgar Wallace. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to be watching movies like The White Spider, Curse of the Frightened Lady, Fellowship of the Frog, and The Terrible People. Are these traditional monster movies? Not really. They're more spooky and really more on the mystery side of things. And I'm really looking forward to sharing these movies with you. I'm going to be doing my best to try to enhance some of these as well the way that I do. Clean up the sound, maybe clean up the picture a little bit. So please join us on Saturday, December 4th. The pre-show starts at 11 a.m. That's something that's put together by Scott Morris. I love what he does there. The movies start around noon. These are all Pacific times. And yeah, it's just going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, speaking of the movie club, not this Saturday, but next Saturday is December 11th. And that's my birthday. I don't know what all I'm going to be doing on my birthday, but I do know that I'm going to be putting together my favorite movies that I can show on December 11th in the Monster Kid Movie Club. So it's going to be Derek's choice <laughs> for my birthday, if you don't mind my indulging myself a little bit. Okay, let's go back a little bit. We've got the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, or as I've been calling it, now, the Monster Kid Cliffhanger Club, because we're showing film serials. And on December 7th, on Twitch, we're going to be showing the second half of the complete run of Zorro's Fighting Legions, as well as the second half of The Green Archer, which is also based on an Edgar Wallace story. The Green Archer, that is. Not Zorro, Zorro, something else. But that's coming up on Tuesday. Let's talk about what's coming up on the podcast on Thursday, however. I am right now trying to come up with a time to meet with Steve Turek online to do an episode with him. Him and I, he and me, Steve and D, Derek and Steve, we're going to be doing an episode and it's going to be about the movie The Gamma People. Now wait a minute. They all look the same. The man looked different. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. They, they, they look like... You know, ordinary men, but without minds. Soulless. Please, you cannot do anything. I can show what's happening to these children. 
Baronsky can't always make geniuses, can he? Sometimes something goes wrong and you get a brat like Hugo or a, a mob of mindless goons to do Baronsky's dirty work for him. This is a macabre mystery. Its location, a remote mountaintop, an uncharted corner of Europe that holds all the menace and the power of the unknown. Give them this note, but please, say nothing. I have not been here. The people who live here go in hourly terror of their lives, for the man who rules and dominates them is a scientist with a mania to reshape destiny. And these people are his ill-fated guinea pigs. He calls them the Gamma People. We mustn't leave tonight. He knows. I'm sure he knows. We are started and we must at least try. Too late to turn back now. They'll kill you. Then they'll kill me. Sooner or later they would have done that anyway. You asked me about the gamma ray, Mr. Wilson. Before your mind dies, you will experience all the extremes of heat. It will not be pleasant, Mr. Wilson. 180 degrees. Ten more degrees, Mr. Wilson. And then... I knew absolutely nothing about this movie before I found that trailer. In the trailer, at the end, it says the movie is directed by John Gilling, who is the man behind one of my absolute favorite Hammer films, The Plague of the Zombies. So I am stoked. I am excited to get into the Gamma People with Steve Turek. That's coming up next week on the podcast. If you have any feedback for the show, if you want to say anything, share anything, talk about anything here on the podcast... This is how you do it. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Of course, that information is on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, Amazon affiliate links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, links to our Twitter page, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Reddit, our Discord, everything's there, our Patreon, which uh, if you are a patron of Monster Kid Radio, well, pay attention to your emails, because I'm going to be sending out some messages probably later this week, no later than the weekend, about some stuff coming up for Patreon subscribers, users, patrons, support supporters. That's the word I'm looking for. It's late, ladies and gentlemen. Even though Steve did the bulk of the work on this episode and Mark Matsky's segments are pretty much fully produced anyway by the time I get them, it's still 11.30 at night on a Wednesday because I said earlier I can't manage my time better. Maybe that's what I need to do on my birthday is I need to learn how to manage my time better. That, that That's something I can do with the course of a day, right? Anyway. MonsterKidRadio.net, everything's there, including links to the virtual housewarming divorce registry to help uh, me get established here, as well as Wednesday, who, you know, when I did that, it was kind of a joke. You know, I was kind of doing it to just kind of make myself feel like, okay, I'm moving on and, and things are going well. But it's been amazing, the support that I've been getting from everybody. Wednesday especially is getting spoiled by everyone. It's fantastic. Nothing but love for everybody. And like I said earlier, Monster Kid Radio listeners, you're my friends. Thank you. Let's go ahead and sign off. And uh, yeah, we'll get to that music and the outro that goes a little something like this. 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Mission 182. That comes from the album El Disco del Herrero. It is from the band Los Ultraman, which you can find at losultraman.bandcamp.com. The song is copyright 2020 Los Ultraman. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week for real. Ciao.